some little bit of tension going on, a little bit of egos and a little bit of clashing. And Paul would eventually dress it in, in chapter 4 and name some names. But he's challenging them to, to basically get on the same page. We're serving the Lord here. These, these differences between you are dangerous and divisive. And then he says this in verse 3, because 3 and 4 are critical in verses 5 through 8, the kenosis passage. So look what he says in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, boastfulness, extreme self-pride, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other. In other words, value others better than yourself, than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that, that's what we looked at last week. The challenge was basically, don't be selfish. We're stopping selfish. But we looked at it as be selfless. Now, Paul is going to go into the greatest example. There is no greater example of selflessness than what Jesus Christ did. When you understand who he really is and what he did in, when he came to earth as a baby, what we call the incarnation, which is what this verse is talking about, when you understand what he did, you realize that there is no greater example of selflessness than what Jesus Christ did to come to this earth to die for our sins. And that's what we're going to look at today. It, there's some difficult terminology in these two verses, mainly verse 6 and verse 7 is what's considered the kenosis passage. But we're, we're going to look at what happened, and we're going to see it is the greatest example. You know, examples are very important. Uh, I remember um, when a, a family came to our church, and, he, and a young man got saved who was married, had kids, and uh, he did not have a, a good father figure, and he expressed how appreciative he was that there were some dads in this church that could be father figures because he didn't know how to be a father. And I re that reminded me of a very special story I've shared many times. My wife's, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, um, he did not have a, a good role model. His father battled with alcohol and just uh, was not did not love his, his mom, my, my father-in-law's mom. and So he didn't have any human beings, like any real live role models. And I remember him telling me this one time. At first, I think I thought he was joking. He said, but I did have role models. And then he mentioned some TV shows, like Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. Now, some of you younger people, have who is, what is that? There used to be a day when television uh, sought to put forth the best example of fatherhood. For example, if you've seen Leave it to Beaver, Ward Cleaver was a role model of a loving, present father. Father knows best. I, I never saw it, but my father-in-law, that was the big one. I guess it was earlier. But apparently there was a father in there that, as you watch the show, and he would just watch the show, and that's where he learned how to be a good father, and he was a good father. He, you know, he was, he had a role model, even though it, now today, you can't look at TV shows and use those, they're not, they have a different attitude now. Now the producers and TV people are saying, well, we don't, what we're doing, we're just reflecting society. 
Uh, so no longer are they trying to present a good example. They're just reflecting society. So if you want to see how dad should not be, you can, you can watch most of today's shows. It's sad. But Paul now, he just got done saying, be selfless. Stop being selfish. And then he moves in, and we're going to look at verse 5 through 8. Look at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He is setting up the greatest example for us to follow. There is no better role model or example. If you're interested in being selfless, if you're interested in how do I live where I serve others and I'm not selfish, how do I do that? Well, here's the example. Let this mind be in you. In other words, Paul's saying, you've got to have this mindset. We all have a mindset. Every Christian has a mindset. And you know, Paul here and God through the scriptures tells us that Christians should have a particular mindset that is different than the world. And so what we're going to see today is not necessarily what you see in, on an everyday basis. In fact, it's, it can be rare to see people that are not just serving their own interest and, and self-centered and, and it's all about me. It's, it's rare, sadly, to see people who genuinely consider other people's needs before their own. And for you and I, if you wonder or if you want to know, how do I, how can I avoid being selfish? What kind of a, you know, how, how do you do it? Where's an example? And there are examples, but there is no greater example than Jesus Christ. Not just in how he lived his life, but everything about, and this is where we come into our text, because Paul is going to actually talk about the pre-existent Jesus. In other words, when Jesus was born a baby, that is not when his life started. Jesus was pre-incarnate. He existed before that baby in Bethlehem. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. What happened that enabled the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to take on human form and become a man. And that, him doing that, is the ultimate expression of love and selflessness. So let me give you the outline, then we'll pray for God to guide us. There's three things we're going to look at today from this text. Verse 5 is the example to follow. Let this mind be in you. Have this mindset. And then he puts Jesus Christ out. And then we see the exhibit name, verse 6 and 7. Uh, we're going to see what Jesus Christ did that is so note noteworthy, that is so important for us that Paul says, you want to know how to be humble? You want to know how to not be selfish? Look to what Jesus Christ did because there is no greater act of humility than that. And then verse 8, we're going to see what he did that makes his example the exceptional. Uh, there is no other example that even comes close to what Jesus Christ did. 
to what the second person of the Godhead did when he took on human form. And so we're going to jump in and uh, look at this. There's some key words. And again, I'm going to try to just make this as simple as possible. Down through history, church history, so many theologians have debated and argued and, and presented and wrestled with the, these two verses. And in our English text, it, it can be somewhat daunting, can be a little confusing, but it need not be uh, when you understand what it's saying. So let's look at verse 5, and we'll just jump right in. The example to follow. And again, I remind you, in fact, look at verses uh, 3 three and 4 again, because this is what he's now addressing. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Be selfless. Okay. How do you do that? Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's challenging us. You need to have the right mindset. If your thinking is off, then you're going to be off. If your thinking is not right, if you don't have the right mindset, if you're not trying to pattern your life after the great example of Jesus Christ, then you're going to very easily fall into the natural default setting of every human being, which is to be self-interested, self-serving, selfish. You remember we've looked at Jesus' teachings to love your neighbor as yourself. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, Paul tells the husband to love his wife as he already loves himself. So the default setting, and, and many people just operate by that. They're just, they only see things from their own perspective. They do not have the, op, the ability to do what Paul is challenging, is to, is to let each esteem other better than themselves. But... If you and I are going to name the name of Christ, we need to act like Christians. And Christians are like Christ. And so the, the right mentality is so important. I read a story recently. Some of you don't. Have you ever heard of the name Walter Cronkite? Okay, many of you older people like us older people know. He was a, a news guy and... Um, one time he shares the story that he was, he was uh, sailing down the Mystic River in Connecticut. Apparently there's a lot of tricky, the channel has a lot of tricky curves and certain real shallow points. And, and a group of young people were speeding past him. Uh, and they, they saw him and they waved and they were all shouting. And, and he was really touched and he waved back. And, you know, he thought, uh, they must know me from TV. And, and his wife looked at him and, and she said, um, do you know what they were shouting? And he said, yeah, he said they were shouting, hello, Walter, hello, Walter. She said, no, they were shouting, low water, low water. And here's this guy, you know, he's, he's all, you know, he's, he's someone that's famous. And so he's, he's automatically in the mode that these people must know me. And he misinterpreted it. You know, it's so easy for us to misinterpret what's going on in our life because we automatically the first thing we do is we th see things only first and foremost from our perspective. And if we don't have the ability 
to step out and, and look not every man on his own perspective, but on others. If we don't have the opportunity to, what do we call it today, put ourselves on other people's shoes. If you can't do that, or if you don't do that, you are going to be a very self-centered, unpleasant person to be around. Because it will be all about you. And there's a lot of people where it's all about them. I love that phrase that I heard just a couple years ago where someone, someone said, you and I are not the central figures in the redemption story. We're not. In other words, you know, God is working all things together for good. God is working all things after the counsel of our will. But it's not just centered around you. In fact, it's not centered around you. It's centered around Him and His glory. That's why our greatest aim in life, our greatest goal is not happiness, self-fulfillment. Our greatest goal is to glorify God. And down through the ages, theologians and church people recognize that. And they, they have, uh, you know, this, the, the thing that they would say at the end of all the services, it, it was that, that God would be, the chief end of man is that God would be glorified. And so now Paul is saying, here's how you need to think. So as we go on now, and we, we look at what Jesus did, I want you to ask yourself, is that my mindset? Have I learned? Am I like my Savior who demonstrated the ultimate act of humility? And what was that? Let's jump in. Look at verse 6. Again, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, here it is, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now this Again, this is where the wording gets tough, and I'm going to try to explain it. Thought it not, he was in the form of God. Literally, the idea is, who being God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, the idea is um, not looking out for one's own needs. Is that idea? Thought it not robbery. It was, uh, in fact, a, a word that's used, some translations even use it, but it's a word where the Greek word literally means grasped. He did not think the idea of being equal with God was something to be grasped. And by that, because that's, that's, when I first heard this text explained, that's how I heard the word grasped. That he didn't think being on an equal with God was something to be grasped. I think automatically I thought what that meant. Like sometimes you'll say, man, that's a hard thing to grasp. You know, like as if somehow Jesus was equal to God, but he never quite got hold of that concept. That's not the idea. Of the idea of being something that was grasped is literally, the, as the idea is that uh, it was not something, the idea, he knew he was equal with God. But what he was about to do was change, not, he wasn't going to change anything about his nature, but he was going to become a man. And the idea of thought it not robbery to be equal with God was he, the idea of clinging to all the glory that was his as the second person of the Godhead. That he didn't think that that was something he couldn't give up. That's the idea. Cling to. Like, hey, I'm God 
and I need to I need to make sure that I'm fully recognized as God. That idea. So so again, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now again, this is this is going back. Let me read a couple of statements here. Um, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, maybe another way of wording it. Here's what one commentator said. He portrays two ways of thinking, in other words, setting our mind. Uh, one selfish, the other selfless. Thus he reminds the Philippians that everything Christ did in bringing them salvation was the exact opposite of what he was challenging in verse 3. Look not every man on his own things. And now he's talking about Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ was only interested in what would what his priorities were and, and that idea of you know being equal with God, he never would have done this next statement. Verse seven. So again, verse six being being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But, and here's the word kenosis, it's a Greek word, and this is what's translated, made himself of no reputation. So when he became a man, so you have, you have God the Son, remember the Trinity existing for all eternity past, and then God the Son, during the incarnation, becomes man. He does not stop becoming God. But he made himself of no reputation. And the term that, that's been identified with that is he emptied himself. That's what the idea of kenosis is. It's translated here again, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That again is what happened on what we celebrate as Christmas, the incarnation. He emptied himself. And here's an observation about this statement. The debate has raged over the concept of emptying himself, which is what kenosis means. And this is very important because some some have claimed that when God became a man, he left part of his deity. He lost something. This writer says, and, and I, I believe it's very sound theology, the debate has raged over the concept of emptying himself. Christ did not empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself, poured himself out. This is a metaphor, pure and simple. He poured himself out by having taken on the form of a slave. Another writer says, Pauline usage everywhere substantiates this view. Where this verb regularly means to become powerless or to be emptied of significance. Here it stands in direct antithesis to the empty glory of verse 3. And it, it functions in the same way as another phrase. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because this is like a companion verse. What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 is exactly what Paul is saying here in this kenosis passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here 
in Philippians chapter 2. That, again, uh, through the grace of God, though he was rich, there's a song we sing, if you've ever heard of it, Out of the Ivory Palaces. That describes Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in all their glory, Jesus Christ, one with God, having the glory. And by the way, when he became a man, he did not lose the glory the way it's been described, I think the best theological way is. But when he did become a man, he veiled his glory. In other words, you see Jesus Christ, and it's not like the pictures depict. You know, when you see a painting, especially out of the Renaissance period, and you see a group of men, older men from way back when, uh, like the Last Supper or something like that, you always know which one's Jesus, right? He's got a glow about him. You know, he's got, the, he's got the halo and, you know, he's set apart. And, and that's, of course, you know, artistic license, I guess. But, folks, if you and I were alive back when Jesus was on this earth, we would not recognize him. He did not have a glow about him. We very likely could have walked by him. In fact, Isaiah says, there is no form or comeliness that we should behold him. In other words, he wasn't, it wasn't like, there's God. There's God who became a man. He was veiled in his glory. Now, by the way, that was true for his whole life up until his crucifixion, except for one moment. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? I think it's Matthew 7 or Matthew 17, where Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John, and all of a sudden, that veil was lifted and he shone, shined, then he did have the shine. And then, clearly, uh, that is a moment where there's the Son of God. But it was just fleeting. You remember uh, Moses and Elijah came there with him, and you remember Peter, and Peter got all flustered. And um, I cannot imagine what it would be like having uh, Elijah and, and Moses come back can you imagine that and actually seeing them, these people you read about all your life, and there they are? And of course, Peter, probably responding how many of you and I would have responded, you know, we're like, oh, Lord, let us make three tabernacles. And, and, and then God silenced him. And he said, this is my beloved son, hear him. In other words, Peter, it's not all about Moses, it's not all about Elijah, it's about my son. And, and so, for that moment, that veil, that, glow, that veil was lifted. But when he became a man, he took upon him the form of a servant and he just looked like any other man. One writer said, The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation. As a slave. He became a slave. And in that society. There was no privileges. There were no rights. And he willingly became a man. So that he could die. For our sins. There is. No greater example. Of selflessness. And we are called. To follow. I remember reading. One of, one of my 
a man that I love his writings uh, is a preacher called Harry Ironside, H.A. Ironside. He did a lot of commentaries on different scriptures, different books of the Bible, very devotional, very practical with a lot of helps, and uh, just was a, a real good, great man of God. And he, um, he shares that, that one time during his life, he really struggled with realizing that he was not, that he struggled with being humble, humility. And he shared it with a friend. He said, you know, because he got a lot of accolades and a lot of people, you know, praised him. And, and he shared that with a friend. He said, you know what you should do, Harry? He said, you should go out. They lived in Chicago. He said, you should go out the streets of Chicago with a big placard of Scripture. You know, you, you've seen those placard, those, those sandwich boards, they call them. He said, you walk out there. You go out there for a couple hours with Scripture and just shout out reading the Scriptures that are on there. And you'll get a dose of humility. And so he said, okay, I'm going to do it. So he got the sandwich board, put the Scriptures on there, went out on the streets of Chicago just shouting out the verses, you know. And after a while, he went into his office and he took off the sandwich board and he thought, I'll bet you nobody else in Chicago would do that. And then all of a sudden he realized, wow, that was a pretty arrogant statement, you know. So his thing that he did to be humble uh, became a thing of pride. That's man. That is man. It is so natural for us to, to glorify ourselves. And that's why we need to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. People that know you, people that really they interact with you, they work with you, they live with you, would they say that you are marked by selflessness? They have examples of conversations and, and such where you're not tooting your own horn, where you are kind of lost or focused on other people's needs with little regard to yourself. Maybe some people have said that about you and be careful you're not proud of that, proud of that. But they that that should be those should be things that identify people who are named after Christ, Christians. Christ like. Jesus said they'll know they are they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. And what is love? It's sacrificing our own needs to meet someone else's. Something all of us need to strive for. None of us would, would dare say we are perfect. But do you see that as a need? If, if you're, if the, again, my, my desire here is not to beat this over your head. Hopefully, we have some humble people here who maybe could be discouraged by that and think, man, I, I need that more. Hopefully that's what you're saying. I hope there's no one here saying, nah, man, I, I nailed this one. I am really, I am really selfless. You know, there, there's a, a danger there. But we all need to really strive to be more selfless, more like Christ. So he humbled himself. Look at verse Look at verse 8 now. We find the exceptional nature of this humility, this action of the incarnation. And being found in fashion as a man. 
he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Being found in fashion as a man. Uh, when William Tyndale first tra translated this into English, he used the phrase, in his apparel as a man. In other words, he literally put on humanity. And again, the idea was that if you looked at Jesus, you wouldn't know this is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. You would just think, oh, there's another Jewish man in, in back in the first century. And so being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death. He came to die, even the death of the cross. That was the most despised way that a human being could die back in Roman times. It was the death of a criminal. It was the death of someone who had uh, committed the, a capital crime. And of course, Jesus willingly died for our sins. There was a book written that I just, just uh, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of reading it or listening to it on audio. And I just read a book review about it because I didn't realize it, it's the 100th anniversary of this book. It means it was written in 1923 by J. Gresham Macon. And it is apparently, in fact, this was the, the book of the year, uh, according to one Christian magazine. And he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. I want you to listen to the distinctions. In fact, um, the, the book's so good. I've already quoted it some in the past. But he, this guy gives a paragraph that just really concisely summarizes what this book about is about. And here's the thing. It distinguishes the difference between Bible Christianity and um, what some calling themselves Christians embrace. Listen to what he said. For Christians, this is Jay, uh, quotes from the book called Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Macon. For Christians, Jesus is the object of faith, not merely an example to follow. For liberals, Jesus is, quote-unquote, a mild-mannered exponent of an undiscriminating love. See, liberal Christianity, those who do not believe in some of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity would still put up Jesus and say he was a wonderful example. Uh, it, it would be like people, say Muslims, that do not believe Jesus Christ is who he said he is, but they would say, oh, he was a great prophet. So he goes on. For Christians, Jesus is the object of faith, not merely an example to follow. For liberals, Jesus is a mild manner exponent of an undiscriminating love. To the liberal, the cross is merely an example of self-sacrifice or of God's love. To the Christian, it is those things, but so much more. Jesus dying in our place, suffering the penalty our sins deserve. And while liberalism is based on aspirations, Christianity was based on both history and doctrine. Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. You get that? Realize how important that is. Again, without these two elements, in other words, we don't deny Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the great example. But is that all he is? Is that all he is? No. He died for our sins. 
Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. And then he goes on. On topic after, this is the book review of the book. On topic after topic, Macon demonstrates liberalism's misunderstanding of the enormity of sin. And he, here's a quote from the book. If sin is so trifling a matter as the liberal church supposes, then indeed the curse of God's law can be taken very lightly. And God can easily let bygones be bygones. But if God is holy and sin is, as the Bible describes it, the state of the sinner is desperate. Do you get that? I want to read that again. That is so important. If sin is so trifling a matter as the liberal church supposes, then indeed the curse of God's law can be taken very lightly And God can easily let bygones be bygones. But if God is holy and sin is as the Bible describes it, the state of the sinner is desperate. That condition is what brings people to get saved. If sin is as big of a deal as God says, and God is as holy as the Bible says He is, then our condition is desperate. And if you take away that aspect, if you remove the holiness of God and just make God a lovey-dovey, soft, warm fuzzball, then you've robbed Christianity of what Jesus accomplished by coming to this world and dying for our sins. If you and I could pull back and look up into the heavens and the throne of God, Right now, what would we see? We know. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's exactly what happened. In Revelation, at a different time, again, the curtain is pulled back. And apparently, this is going on all the time. So that if you and I could pull back and look up and see the throne of God, there would be a host of angelic beings around Him. And night and day, repeating, they would be saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That apparently, God is so holy, that is His primary attribute, that there is acknowledgement of that in His presence day and night. In fact, John, in Revelation, when he says that, when he saw that, fell flat on his face, knowing his unworthiness. In Isaiah, when Isaiah saw that, and you know, he saw the Lord lifted up high, just that whole picture, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. See, when you and I get a glimpse of the holiness of God, we realize we're in a desperate situation, and that's when we are ready to receive a Savior. You ever been that desperate? You ever seen yourself as a sinner? that needed salvation. There's a story, and I close with this, during the reign of Frederick William III of Prussia. He uh, was apparently a great leader, and he found himself in trouble. Uh, they had already been through several wars, and uh, the, their funds were minuscule. He, he was, the story is told, he was, he was seriously short of finances, and he did not know what to do. He could not capitulate to the enemy. And 
Uh, after he thought about it for a while, the story is told that he decided to ask the women of Prussia to bring their jewelry of gold and silver to be mel melted down for their country. And uh, for each ornament, for each piece of jewelry that was received, he exchanged um, a little token of bronze or iron. Um, it was a little decoration that would be inscribed that said, I gave gold for iron, 1813. Uh, that, they could mass produce that without, with a little effort. And uh, he didn't know how the people would respond, but apparently all, all the women came in. It was overwhelming. Everybody gave their jewelry willingly. And after a short amount of time, that little medallion that said, I gave gold for iron, became a cherished thing that women would wear with pride because of what it signified. It wasn't worth anything, but it signified that these people were loyal to the king and sacrificed for their country. And pretty soon, wearing jewelry, it was, it was like a no-no. And pretty soon, that wearing that medallion, you know, very little significance, that became the honorable thing to do. Now, you know, here you and I are, we're called to be like our Savior, we're called to be like Jesus. In other words, you know, the idea of a thing to be grasped is that Jesus was not in it for the glory. He set that aside to take on the most humble humiliating you could say form of a man and then to die the death of a criminal and he did that for you and I now you know what an amazing thing when you think of this this king of Prussia you know that that you think about it you know jewelry, jewelry there's some exquisite works of jewelry isn't there beautiful beautiful things and, and yet for these women to be willingly give that not because they were getting something better in return but because of what it represented. Now, you know, you and I are challenged to lay up treasure in heaven. You and I are challenged to not be like the world where it's all about me and to gain glory and, you know, it's all about selfishness. No, us, it's all about God's glory. I, I close with, I remember the story. It, it, what a blessing to me. You, you may have heard the story of James Elliott, who back in 1956 in January her husband was speared along with four other missionaries um, going to the Ayuka tribe. They were trying to reach them with the gospel to show these men love, and they ended up dying. Uh, it, it is an amazing story. Just that, that they, you know, there's people uh, that thought that maybe they were being foolish. But can you imagine loving someone so, so much? You wanted them to hear the gospel that you were willing to risk your own life? The amazing thing is what happened after that. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of James Elliot, and then uh, Nate Saint was one of the other men that was speared to death. His sister and Elizabeth Elliot, who had just had, uh, when, when her husband was killed, she had a little girl that I think was 10 months old. And they went back to that very tribe to try to reach them with the gospel. Now that blows my mind. Because you know how many stories there are in America of people where somebody murdered a loved one and the, the fam, a certain family member just became bitter and maybe even spent their whole life trying to get revenge. 
That's a normal story, isn't it? You know, you take away something that's special to me and you will pay. Oh, there's so many bitter people. How many times have you heard these mass murderers that, you know, they're kind of just because something horrible happened to them, they're just lashing out at the world. That's normal. But to see someone so inspired by the love of Christ that they would then go back to try to give the life-saving gospel to these people that killed her husband, that killed her brother. That's love. That is having the mindset of Jesus Christ. None of us have arrived. Would you agree? All of us should be striving to have that attitude, to have that mentality, to have that mindset. So let's go out and be like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord. We fall short. So many times we are not motivated by selflessness, but rather selfishness. Father, I pray that you would set us, set before us this example of our Savior. Help us to never forget it and help us to have that mind that we would set aside selfish ambition self-glory, vain glory, and help us, Father, to just think about the needs of others around us and to just love them as Christ loved us. And we'll thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' precious name.